Good morning. Stick out your copy of the scriptures. Turn to Luke chapter 6. On Sunday mornings here at First Baptist Church, we have been going through the Gospel of Luke. And our text this morning is Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. So look along in your Bible as I read the text for us. Uh, This is the word that God has for you this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Well, as you can see, our passage this morning is a list of names. It is a list of the 12 apostles of Jesus. Uh, some of those names you're going to be familiar with the characters behind the names, and then some of those names you're probably not too familiar with, but that's basically what we've got here is a list of names. And so in that sense, it's different from the narratives that we've been covering in the last few months from this gospel. There's no great miracles here. Uh, there's no amazing healings. Uh, there's no powerful pronouncements. Uh, there's not even any dialogue or any action. It's just a list of names. And so maybe there's a subtle temptation when we come to a text like this, maybe in our Bible reading, just kind of skim over it quickly and fast forward to the next set of verses. Right? Because look at verses 17 to 19. We've got miracles and we've got healings again. And then that's followed by this extensive section, uh, rest of the chapter, that recounts for us some of Jesus' important teachings. And so perhaps it's easy for us to mentally check out when we come to verses like this, when we read verses like this, and for our eyes to just kind of skip ahead to what's to come. But, and this is one of the wonderful things about God's Word, it's often the passages that we might overlook or skim past that contain some of its most precious truths. When we slow down and we just kind of think about them. So that's my hope for today, that we consider this seemingly mundane list of the 12 apostles, and that as we do so, God the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to some really wonderful truths contained in these verses. So here's our game plan for this morning. First, before we get to the list of the disciples itself, I'm going to make four observations about the selection process, right? The way in which the apostles were selected, and that's in verses 12 and 13. Uh, Then we'll talk briefly about the 12 names on the list, uh, both as a whole and as individuals. And finally, we'll close with a few takeaways, uh, a few application points as we think about how this text then calls us to live as God's people. But before we do any of that, not just because it's what we do before every sermon, but because we really do need God's help. We really are dependent on him. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the gospel of your son. We as 
wretched sinners who have sinned against the holy God. We could never hope to atone for our own sins. We could never hope to achieve our own righteousness in your eyes. And yet through the cross of your son, through his death and his resurrection, you have accomplished both of those things for your people. And so we just stand in awe of the great love with which you have showered us. As we come before you now as forgiven sinners made righteous, as disciples of our Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would once again be our teacher, that we might learn truth from your word. And not only that we would learn truth, but that our hearts would be changed by truth so that we might become more and more like your Son. Father, we also pray for those in this room who are not yet disciples of Christ, who are not Christians, that today you would work in their hearts to save them. And we ask all of this in the name of our glorious Savior. Amen. We'll start with four observations from this text about the selection process of the apostles. First, let's think about the context in which Jesus chooses his apostles. Look at verse 12. It says that it was in these days. On what days? Well, remember what's going on in our storyline here. We've just finished five straight stories in which Jesus meets opposition from the Pharisees and the scribes, right? The religious leaders of the day. It's been confrontation after confrontation after confrontation between Jesus and the religious establishment. There's the confrontation that happened when Jesus heals the paralytic on the mat and forgives his sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We have the confrontation about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. The confrontation about Jesus and his disciples not fasting like the Pharisees. The confrontation about Jesus' disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then last week we looked at the confrontation about Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, the man with a withered hand. And so the tension has been rising here between Jesus and the Pharisees. And all of that culminates in chapter 6, verse 11. They're plotting together what they might do to him, right? They're trying to kill him, to destroy him. And so the opposition's gone from maybe what started as a skeptical curiosity to uh, accusations of wrongdoing. And now it's just outright murder and hatred. And all that's really brought to the forefront what's already been alluded to several times in this gospel, that these people are eventually going to kill Jesus. Now more parties are going to get involved, but at the end of the day, right, it's this group of people that we see here in chapter 6, the religious establishment of the day, who's going to eventually send Jesus to the cross in these days. And so this selection process is happening in these days of mounting opposition that serve as kind of this ominous foreshadow of his eventual death. Now Jesus knows that he's going to die, that there's going to come a day when the bridegroom is taken away, right? We saw that in chapter 5. After all, that's why he came to earth, right? That he might give his life a ransom for many. But while his death and his resurrection, and his ascension, while those would be one-time historical events, well, the mission of taking that message to the ends of the earth, that's something that's going to continue well after he's gone. And so in that sense, this selection process is crucial. 
Jesus is picking the men who would carry on his mission once he's gone. Uh, The men who would go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, The men who would establish the foundation for his church. And so it's literally a decision that's going to impact the rest of human history. In these days, in the days of rising opposition, as his death stands less than two years away at this point, Jesus needs to make a crucial decision. Which leads to our next observation about the process, which is that he prays all night about it. Verse 12, In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. If you've ever pulled an all-nighter, and this isn't like, you know, you stay up till the sun rises and then you go to bed the next day. We're talking about just straight up skipping a night of sleep. You know how hard and unpleasant that can be for your body. And so typically we view it as kind of like a last resort, right? Like you've got a deadline tomorrow, whether it's a project for work or a term paper for school or whatever it might be, and you have to finish it. And so we just push our bodies to the limit to get it done, right? To meet that deadline. Well, if you think about it, it's not like Jesus has a a deadline of some sort here. Like he has to submit the names of the 12 apostles by 4 p.m. the next day. And he's got no idea who to choose. And so he forces himself to stay up all night praying about it. No, not at all. And so this isn't like an all-nighter that we might pull because there's some deadline that we need to meet. This all-nighter is Jesus' strong desire to commune with the Father for this extended period of time for wisdom on this matter. And so this is much more analogous to when you joyfully stay up all night talking to a dear friend than it is you forcing yourself to pull an all-nighter to kind of cram in a work deadline. And look at Luke's repetitiveness in verse 12. He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Like Luke is really driving home Jesus' prayerfulness on this. Just like he was praying at his baptism. Just like he was praying in response to his increased popularity in Luke chapter 5. Just like he's going to be praying at the Mount of Transfiguration and in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like at every critical juncture of his life and ministry, we find Jesus praying. And this as we said earlier, is another critical juncture. And so it's no surprise that we find Jesus praying. Now, if Jesus, who even in his humanity, was sinless and wise and had a closer communion to God than any of us do, if he felt the desire to pull an all-nighter praying about a decision, to spend an extended period of time seeking wisdom before this big decision Well, does that not serve us as a model? Not that we necessarily need to stay up all night, but but in terms of the fervency and the intensity and the frequency of our prayer. Certainly served as a model for the early church. You read the book of Acts, you constantly see the early church imitating their Savior in this way. Like, there's a big decision, we're going to pray about it. When they had to decide between two men, Joseph and Matthias. Like, who is going to replace Judas? Uh, What do they do? Acts 124, and they prayed. When when they're deciding, uh, we're going to send Paul and Barnabas out to be missionaries. What do they do? Acts 13.3, after fasting and praying. 
I think at times we can be so like, pragmatic and practical about the big decisions that we have to make in life. And so we'll come up with a list of pros and cons and uh, we'll have strategies and tactics and we'll, we'll seek counsel and godly wisdom. And none of those are bad things. Like, I think it's good to think through pros and cons. And there is safety in a multitude of counselors. But first and foremost, like above all else, have we prayed about it? God, please grant me wisdom on this. God, I don't know what to do. I want to do what honors you. Please help me to make this decision well. So our second observation about this decision-making process is that Jesus prays about it. Our third observation is that Jesus chooses them. Verse 13, when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. And so there is no job fair here. There's no applications. There's no resumes and cover letters. There's no votes and uh, committees or anything like that. It's just that Jesus chooses them. And we've seen that in action several times already in this book. You remember when Jesus calls Peter back in chapter 5? And so this would have been kind of a more general call to follow him prior to his call to apostleship here. What does he say? Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Not like, hey, Peter, what what would you think about potentially following me for a little bit? No, Jesus chooses Peter, and Peter follows Jesus. I think it's even more obvious with Levi the tax collector. Chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose up and followed him. It's exactly what Jesus says to the apostles in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you. And that, just like the healing of the man with the withered hand that we talked about last week, that's yet another picture of our salvation, is it not? That we don't choose Jesus No, Jesus sovereignly chooses us. And any choosing that we do is a result of him having chosen us. Some of you might be thinking right now, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, how do I know if Jesus chose me? Well, I tell you, repent and believe. Repent of your sins, turn away from your sins and turn towards God. Believe that you're a hell-bound sinner, that Jesus died for your sins and rose again to make you righteous. Believe that he's your only hope of salvation. He's the only hope that you have to be forgiven of your sin and to be made right with God. Repent and believe today, right? Be saved today. And that's how you know that Jesus chose you. Because he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So remember, we're talking about the selection process here. Happens in these days, the days of opposition. Jesus prays about it all night. Jesus chooses them. And our fourth observation is that he calls them apostles. Verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. I think a little clarification of vocabulary might be helpful for us. The word disciple 
it's just kind of a general term that means student. And student, not so much in the sense of like a college kid sitting in this big lecture hall. Uh, Back then, the emphasis was less on learning by going to a class and more on learning by following a teacher or attaching yourself to a teacher. But disciple is a pretty general word, right? It refers to anyone who was a student in that sense. And so uh, even in this gospel, right, we have people like John the Baptist who have disciples. And Jesus had a lot of disciples. Some of them were genuine. Some of them were not. And it's from that larger group of disciples who followed him that Jesus chose from them 12 who then would be called apostles. And so what about that word apostle? Well, apostle is a transliteration of the Greek word apostolos, right? Just means that instead of uh, defining the word or translating the word, we just take that word directly from the Greek and we make it into an English word. Uh, It just means sent one, right? It's a person who is sent. And so the picture you should have in your mind is of like a delegate or a, a representative or an ambassador who represents a king or someone important who is commissioned by them, sent by them for some specific task or purpose. And so there's this general sense in which the New Testament uses that word, uh, just meaning messenger or delegate who represents the one who sent him. So for example, if you remember in the book of Philippians, uh, Epaphroditus is described as a messenger, same word, apostolos, uh, to Paul's need, meaning that he was sent by the Philippian church to Paul. But here, that same word apostle, it's used in a narrower sense referring only to these 12 men chosen on this occasion. Now later, Judas would be replaced by a guy named Matthias, and uh, Paul would be added in as an apostle untimely born, but uh, just forgetting about those exceptions for a moment, right? These guys are the apostles. Uh, These guys are Jesus' followers who'd been with him since the beginning and were specially commissioned by him to spend time with him and to go out and preach the gospel. By the way, side point, Uh, since there are no more people who would fulfill the requirement of having been with Jesus, plus the additional requirement of having seen him resurrected, uh, there are no more apostles in this narrower sense. And so just, I don't know, general rule of thumb, you should have an eyebrow raised anytime someone tells you that they're an apostle. What do you mean by that? So these 12 men, right, these apostles, they'd be sent out by Jesus with his authority, as his representatives, and uh, he would later tell them, whoever receives you, receives me. Why? Because I am sending you as my apostles. So again, four observations on this selection process. Happens in the days of opposition. Jesus prays about it all night. Jesus chooses them, and then he calls them apostles. So now let's talk about the list itself. This list of the 12 disciples or 12 apostles, uh, this is not a unique one. Uh, It's actually one of four such lists. You have Luke chapter 6, Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 10, and Acts chapter 1. And if you compare those four lists side by side, a few interesting things kind of stand out. Uh, First, in every list, Peter always comes first. And that makes sense because Peter was the first pope. No, it's making sure you're paying attention, right? Happy Reformation Day. Uh, No, there is no Pope in the Bible, right? Peter's listed first in every list because he is the spokesman, right? He is the leader of the group. He's the one who often speaks 
for the whole. Second feature common to all the lists, Judas comes last. Except in Acts, he's not on the list because, well, he's dead. Uh, but in the other three lists, right, Judas's name always comes last. And it's always attached, uh, always attached to it is this kind of not so flattering description of him. Right? In Luke's list, it's Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Third, the order of the disciples in the various lists is always different. But they're always grouped in the same groups of four. And in every list, the same person is always listed first within each group of four. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're always the first four listed in some order. And since Peter heads every list, it only makes sense that he heads that list in each— he heads that group in each list— Uh, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. In some order, uh, they're always the next four who are listed. And Philip is always the first name in that group. And so thinking about the list of 12, Philip is always in position number five. And finally, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, in some order, are always the last four listed— And James, the son of Alphaeus, is always the first name in that group. And so in the list of 12, he's always in spot number nine. What does that mean? Oh, we don't really know because the scriptures don't explicitly tell us. Uh, Perhaps the 12 were subdivided into uh, groups of four. Uh, For example, we see Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They ask Jesus a question privately in Mark chapter 13. And so maybe there's subgroups and maybe each of those subgroups has an appointed leader Uh, We can't be sure. Let me speak briefly about each name on the list. By the way, uh, if you don't know the names of the 12 disciples, I mean, like, your salvation does not depend on that in any sense. Uh, But I also think it's, it's, it's more than just silly Bible trivia. Like, I think every Christian should know the names of the 12 men who would become the foundation of the church. And you say, well, how in the world am I going to remember all these names? Uh, I learned them through a song. There were 12 disciples. Jesus called to help him. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James's brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. Coming for your gig, Frank. You better watch out. I think it's a good thing to memorize, know the names of the men who would become the foundation of the church. Let's go through them in the order that Luke has them. So Peter, we all know Peter. He's the spokesman. He's the leader. And the New Testament records him as having some like really high highs and some really low lows. Right? So one of the highs, he, he walks on water. That's amazing. But that's immediately followed by a low low, right? Because he lacks faith, he starts to sink. One of the highs, he gives the great confession at Caesarea Philippi. Right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And for that, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Like, that's awesome. But that's immediately followed by one of the lowest lows. He rebukes Jesus for saying that he would go and be, uh, be killed. Uh, this shall never happen to you. Well, for that, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. More highs, he's the one who preaches at Pentecost. 
God uses his preaching to save 3,000 people, basically kickstart the early church, but also his lows. Remember that he's the one who denied Christ three times. More highs, he's written two books of Holy Scripture, First and Second Peter, but more lows. Paul has to rebuke him in Galatians chapter 2 for being a hypocrite. So you've got Peter. Next on the list is Andrew. Andrew is Peter's brother. He's the one we read about this morning in our scripture reading from John chapter 1, right? We have found the Messiah, and so he brings Peter to Jesus. James. Well, we actually met James and his brother John back in Luke chapter 5. Remember Peter, the miraculous catch of fish? Verse 10 tells us that James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, also fishermen, they were also there. This James becomes the first martyr of the group. His death is recorded for us in Acts chapter 12, right? Herod Agrippa kills him with the sword. Then we have John. We know John. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Revelation. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the only one of the 11 non-Judas Iscariot disciples who, according to church history, wasn't martyred for Christ. He dies in his old age in exile on the island of Patmos. And he, James, and Peter, right? So Peter, James, and John, they, they seem to form some kind of big three of sorts. Like they're the only three who are up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're the only three that go with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so uh, they seem to form an inner circle of sorts, even within the broader group of the 12 apostles. Uh, Philip, we don't really know too much about Philip, except, well, he's from the same hometown as Peter and Andrew. And He's portrayed several times in the Gospels as like not getting things or not understanding things. And so John tells us that it was Philip who says to Jesus, like, we can't buy bread for all these people. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's like, oh, that's what you meant by give them something to eat. And Philip's the one who says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And of course, Jesus replies, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Bartholomew, if we don't know much about Philip, we really don't know much about Bartholomew. Uh, Bartholomew bar means son. uh, And so Bartholomew probably means son of Tolmai. And so Bartholomew is not his given name. Right? Bartholomew just tells us that he was the son of Tolmai. His given name is probably Nathaniel. Right? It's probably the Nathaniel that we read about this morning from John chapter 1. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Matthew, we know Matthew, Levi. He's the uh, tax collector that Jesus calls in Luke chapter 5. And uh, he, of course, is the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Thomas. When you think about Thomas, the first thing you think about is probably his doubting Jesus' resurrection, right? Doubting Thomas. Kind of a tough deal for him because he was a really faithful disciple. Uh, His confession of Jesus, right? My Lord and my God, it's one of the most powerful in the scriptures. Uh, Church history tells us that he brought the gospel to India. James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, we really know nothing about James, the son of Alphaeus. All we know is who he is not, right? He is not James, the brother of John. Uh, he is not James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. He's just another James. Simon, who is called the Zealot. 
Uh, the reason we get that qualifier, right, who is called the zealot, is so we don't get him confused with the other Simon, Simon Peter. Uh, the zealot there might be referring to his zeal for the Lord, but it's more likely a political term. Uh, the zealots were a group of Jews who were radically and violently opposed to the Romans and wanted to overthrow them by revolution and insurrection. Now, whether he was, he was officially part of that movement or he just identifies with them ideologically, uh, we don't know. But either way, he was probably a very nationalistic Jew. Uh, Judas, the son of James, uh, John, in his gospel, calls this guy Judas, not Iscariot. Uh, again, having two guys with the same name means you've got to distinguish between them. And so he's uh, Judas, not Iscariot. Uh, we have two trustees named Daniel. We have Dan Koo and Dan Not Koo. Right? <laughs> Dan Koo and Dan Jay. Right? Now, comparing uh, this list in Luke to other lists, we see that Judas has another name, right? Thaddeus. Again, clarifying that he is not Judas Iscariot. You say, well, what kind of name is Thaddeus? Well, if you had a name that could get you mixed up with Judas Iscariot, you'd let people call you Thaddeus also. Last on the list, of course, is Judas Iscariot. We're going to talk about him more next week. So those are the 12 names on the list. But what's as interesting as who is on the list is who is not on this list. Here's what I mean by that. First, consider that there's nobody on this list from his immediate family. And I think Mark makes this point the clearest, right? So turn real quick to Mark chapter 3. If you look at Mark 3, you'll see those same names, that same list that we just went over in Mark chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And now look at the very next verses, verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And so his family, in particular his brothers, well, not only were they not his disciples, they thought he was crazy. Now two of his brothers, half-brothers, right, sons of Mary and Joseph, uh, two of his half-brothers, James and Jude, well, they would come to faith after Jesus' resurrection, and they would even write two of the books of the New Testament, but in these days, well, they were not his disciples. You know who else is not on the list? Anybody from the religious elite. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, scholars, rulers of the synagogue. Got Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen by trade. Got Matthew. He's a tax collector by trade. The rest of these guys, we don't really know what they did. But none of them, as far as we can tell, none of them had anything to do with the religious elite. None of them had any formal religious training. But you see, that's more than just a fun fact. You think about this. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, who would preach and teach in synagogues, he is putting together his apostles that they might help him to carry on his mission. Now, if you've never read the Gospels, you would think that he would choose his apostles from among the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so on, right? The guys who were viewed as the holy men of God. 
The guys who had the religious credentials and the education that they would need to spread a message like that. But no, we've seen story after story after story which make it very clear why Jesus would have nothing to do with these people. It's because they stood for a system, a system of works-based self-righteousness that was completely antithetical to his gospel. And so they oppose him at every single juncture. They even plot to kill him. All that to say, Jesus' choice of fishermen and tax collectors and commoners That serves as an indictment on that entire system. An indictment on the leadership of Israel. An indictment on the religious establishment of that day. They were, to use an illustration from later on, they were a barren fig tree. Completely dead, bearing no fruit. And so they are completely missing from this list. Well, that's our list. That's our passage. Let me give you three takeaways. Uh, What implications does this list of the 12 disciples have for us? Well, first, we can see from this list of disciples that Jesus brings all kinds of people together. I mean, this is like an eclectic mix of people. I think maybe the clearest example of this is in considering Matthew and Simon the Zealot. If we're right about Simon the Zealot being a nationalistic Jew, hating Rome, hating the Roman government and everything that it stood for, well, he and Matthew would have been natural enemies. Matthew is exactly the kind of guy who Simon the Zealot would want to kill. Remember, Matthew is a tax collector. Matthew works for or worked for the Roman government. And so you've got a guy who hates the Roman government to the point of violent opposition. And you've got a guy who in his past life sold out to that same government against his own people. You've got the most patriotic and nationalistic kind of Jew back then. And you've got a guy who basically was shunned by Jewish society because he was viewed as a traitor to his people. There's absolutely no way that those two could ever be friends, that those two could ever get along, that those two could ever work together. Well, apart from being called by Christ. Friends, that's one of the most beautiful pictures of the people of God in the New Testament, right? That Jesus brings all kinds of people together. In Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Neither Jew nor Greek, right? Jews, Gentiles, historically hundreds of years of hatred and disdain and exclusion, but now united in Christ, in one body, to be brothers and sisters in the same church. Neither slave nor free. Economically, Socially, we're talking about completely separate groups of people with opposing interests, yet united in Christ to love and serve one another. Zealots and tax collectors, Simon and Matthew, natural enemies, now united in Christ to serve Jesus together as apostles. Brothers and sisters, as I look around at you this morning, 
I give God thanks. Because on like any measure of outward difference, you all, as the body of Christ, you all reflect this glorious truth that Jesus brings all kinds of people together. Believers of different ages, different nationalities, different languages, different occupations, different educations, different life stages, different baseball teams. Though I'm sure we would be a better church if we did not have any Yankee fans. We'll get to that later. But brothers and sisters, this is something that we ought to be thankful for, right? To give God praise for, that that our church reflects, at least in some way, this New Testament model. But here's the thing, and here's where I want to challenge you this morning. What is true of us as a group, collectively, well, that may not necessarily be true of our individual hearts. And what's true of us as a church, again, collectively, as a body, may not necessarily be reflected in our own lives and our own relationships and our own friendships. And so each of us should be asking ourselves, the people that I invest in and spend time with and minister to and talk to, is it only people that I would naturally be drawn to anyway, apart from Christ? Or are there some people mixed in there who are just all together unlike me? Like we really have absolutely nothing in common apart from Christ. And that's what draws us together. Because takeaway number one, Jesus brings all kinds of people together. The common denominator, really the only common denominator between these men is Jesus. Takeaway number two, Jesus often chooses the insignificant. We've already spoken about how the religious elite of the day are missing from this list, but it's not just the religious elite. It's the the social elite, the the royalty, the the nobility, the, the influencers. None of them are on this list. These are fishermen. These are common folks. In Acts, they're called uneducated common men. And the New Testament makes it clear that this is no exception. This is just how God typically works. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's start in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? We're looking at this list of the 12 disciples and we're wondering, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And we're looking at this list of the 12 disciples and we're saying, who is of noble birth? Who is wise according to worldly standards? Who is powerful? But why would God choose the insignificant? Verses 27 and following. But God chose what is foolish in the world. This is true of us. This is true of the disciples. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, here it is, punchline, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Jesus has chosen for himself 12 seemingly insignificant men, seemingly ordinary men, so that any boasting, any glory might go to him. And history proves that true, doesn't it? Like when we think of Peter, we think of Jesus. And when we think of Andrew, we think of Jesus going down the list, right? None of these men have any historical significance or lasting legacy apart from what they did in Christ. Well, if that's true of the disciples, the apostles, it's true of us also, is it not? I mean, whatever God is doing here at First Baptist Church, well, he's doing it through insignificant, ordinary people like me and like you. Somewhat humbling, right, to think of ourselves in that way, but it's good to know that those are the kinds of people that God typically uses. Which means, brothers and sisters, that we don't need to chase the status markers of our society. We don't need worldly prestige and power. We don't need to try to legitimize ourselves by boasting in worldly standards. We just need to be faithful, preach Christ and him crucified, love one another, and boast in the Lord. Takeaway number two, Jesus often chooses the insignificant. Takeaway number three, Jesus transforms them to do extraordinary things. I'm sure these are insignificant and ordinary men, but Jesus transforms them to do significant and extraordinary things. How does that happen? Well, look what it says in Mark 3.14. Right? This is right before Mark introduces to us the list of the 12. Mark 3.14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Why? So that they might be with him. So that they might be with him. Now keep that in mind and look at what it says about them in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. This is after Jesus has left them. What do we got to say about these apostles? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized, everybody recognized, it was undeniable that they had been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. And so being with Jesus transformed them to the point of astonishing the religious leaders of the day. The power of the Holy Spirit that now indwelled them. Well, it had transformed them. He had transformed them to the point of turning the world upside down. I mean, just think about the extraordinary and amazing things that the apostles did. Uh, their doctrine, their teaching uh, becomes the foundation upon which the church is built with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And here we are, 2,000 years later, we're still standing on that foundation. Uh, they and their close associates would write the entirety of the New Testament. Uh, millions of believers have been edified through their writings. Church history tells us that they took the gospel to Asia and to Africa and to Northern Europe and to Western Europe. And so, yeah, they were insignificant and ordinary guys in one sense. But at the same time, they did quite significant 
and extraordinary things, or we should say God did quite significant and extraordinary things through these insignificant and ordinary guys. Takeaway number three, Jesus transforms them to do extraordinary things. Friends, we are not apostles. We are not called to be the foundation of the church. We are not called to write scripture. We're not called to do anything like that, uh, to do these significant and extraordinary things like them. But consider, brothers and sisters, consider that the same Holy Spirit who indwelt those men will now indwells each of us who are Christ's. Consider that the same great commission that was first given to them has been given to us. Consider that the same gospel message of salvation uh, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, that same gospel message that was given to those apostles to preach has also been handed down to us. And consider that the same Christ who conformed them into his image is also working in each of us who are children of God. You listen to what Jesus says later on in this very chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Every disciple of Jesus, when he is fully trained, will be like Jesus. And that's the Christian's great desire, is it not? That we might be like him. And that in itself, that is the most significant and extraordinary thing that God could do in insignificant and ordinary people like us, to conform us to the image of his son. But that's exactly what he has promised to do. Father, we thank you for the disciples, for the apostles upon whom the foundation of the church sits with Christ Jesus himself as its cornerstone. Father, we thank you that the apostles' doctrine and teaching has been preserved and passed on to us that we might believe and cherish those same truths. Father, we pray for every disciple, every true disciple of Christ in this room Father, that we would each day seek to be conformed more and more to the image of your Son, that we might become like him. And Father, we pray for those who do not yet know you. Father, that today would be the day of salvation, in which they would see their need for Christ, in which they would see the burden of their sin, and that Christ alone can remove that and give them righteousness. Father, that they would believe and be saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.